So tonight, we begin First Chronicles. And I'm very excited to begin First Chronicles. When I was on my trip, I read the entire book. And I had a great time with the Lord reading the book, just meditating upon it. And Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, at first look, you think, ah, it's pretty similar to like First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings. But actually, it's quite different, although you have some consistent stories and texts. Even as we went through Second Kings, we often reference Second Chronicles for more insight on people like Hezekiah and whatnot. But really, if you compare these, this book with, say, like, First and Second Kings or Samuel, it's sort of like comparing the Gospel of Mark to like the Gospel of John. Like Mark tells you, yeah, and Jesus fed 5,000. Like, oh, it's information, it's deliberate, it's intentional. John tells you a story like what Sam taught on Saturday. Like, yes, yeah, like, oh, this and these people and all, and you uh, the food from heaven. And like John gives you way more. So when we look at this book, we're going to see David and Solomon and all this stuff. And we're going to see more like facts and almost like administrative information compared to a lot of the backstory. We get the similar names, but not as much detail. So when we go through Chronicles, we'll draw attention to some of the details that go with those names to remind ourselves of what God did in their lives and the legacy and the application of their lives. We'll also see as we go through Chronicles that we get interesting. There, there is unique text in Chronicles that's nowhere else. For example, the prayer of Jabez, which we'll get to just in a couple of weeks, which is awesome. And that's in Chronicles, but not anywhere else. And then we get these details about the dynasty of David and his people and his administration. And we'll get details about people that are very unique details that will give us good application as well. Now, if you know anything about Chronicles, we get like hundreds, if not thousands of names. So we're going to get a lot of names. And when I went through Chronicles about 10 years ago, I surveyed portions of it, taught verse by verse through some of it. But I didn't come through COVID and come this far to just start surveying Chronicles. I'm going to give you every name because every name matters. But you say, like, well, why is there a book with so many names? Most people attribute this book to Ezra, the priest. And so the background to this book is we just left off in 2 Kings with the Judah being taken away into captivity in Babylon. You know, Jerusalem gets burned. Everything gets destroyed. The walls get torn down. And for 70 years... Those descendants from the tribe of Judah get taken into captivity, whether they're under Nebuchadnezzar and whatnot, then the Medo-Persian Empire, and eventually they come back in fulfillment of God's word through Jeremiah and other places. They rebuild, and Ezra led that rebuilding, the rebuilding of the temple, then Nehemiah rebuilt the wall thereafter. And as the captives were coming back from Babylon, they're coming back to a land they've not been for 70 years. It's, it's very different than, like, say, when Joshua led them into the promised land in the first place. But now they're coming back, and they're coming back starting all over, but really there's a legacy in the land of their forefathers that preceded them. And so you'll see in the Chronicles these early parts of all these names. The emphasis, of course, is Judah, because these people that are coming back, they have an ancestral link to these people. It's kind of like Ancestry.com. 20, 2,500 years ago. The people coming back from captivity are looking to their great-great-grandparents and the legacy of those that went before them that were part of the names and the lineage of these people. And that's the significance. So what's profound about Chronicles is it takes us back. In fact, it takes us back to the very beginning of mankind. It brings us to the present of what these people were going to be facing in the context of the book of Ezra, which we'll eventually get to, before the year is done. And it takes us to the future, which is us, the church of Jesus Christ. Because everything in the Old Testament is pointing toward Christ, Christ's coming and what Christ did on the cross, his rising from the grave, ascending and reigning from the right hand of the Father and returning in glory. So really, like, it starts with Adam. This book tonight starts with Adam. And really, tonight, you need to understand, it's still going with you and me. If we say the book of Acts is the continuation of the church this day, that we're the book of Acts, chapter 29, as they say, we're also First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, still going. Because everything preserved for us in this book, these names and these details, are for our benefit, pointing to Christ and what he's done for us, what he's doing in us. And so it's a legacy in the history of the church, human history, but through the church now, and what he's doing in our lives, and what we hope to see him do in the lives when we're long gone of our children and our children's children. Like when we prayed for Mark Coca a couple of weeks ago, we're, we're praying all the way to the next century if he lives a full 80 years, right? I mean, that's basic math. 
And so keep that in mind as we go through this book and look at names. It's like, it's you, it's me, it's our neighbors. It's people that walk with the Lord. It's people that fight the Lord. It's people who've made good decisions and bad decisions. In fact, reading through Chronicles and the names is like walking through a cemetery. There's a birthday, a passing date, and something, usually a few words that summarizes their life. A dash between dates and something that summarizes their life. That's what Chronicles is like. So to me, it's one giant exhortation to redeem our time and and do well with what we have. Yes and? All right. It always begins with Adam. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahaleel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. That is the shortest four verses I think you'll find in the Bible. It's, it's four verses. And it's the pre-flood world, right? So this is the dawn of creation. These are names we're familiar with, the dawn of creation. So as Chronicles is taking the Jewish captives returning to the promised land, the descendants of the captives, it starts with the very beginning, Adam, which is noteworthy because when we're in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, when it starts with the, the Virgin Mary, Jesus through the Virgin Mary being born, it starts there and goes to her descendants, one of which we'll get to tonight, the son of Bathsheba, but not Solomon. And it goes all the way back to Adam. And we're told in Romans 5 that in Adam, the first Adam, all sin and die, and we're under a death sentence. But in the second Adam, Christ has come, the second Adam, who delivers us from the curse of the first Adam. In Adam, all sin and die, and we're told that Jesus is the second Adam. Adam was the perfect man created by God in the image of God. He was given placement, purpose, in a world of order and design where nothing was wrong in the universe. No death, no entropy, none of that. A perfect universe with a perfect man there. He was given his identity as a man. He was given his identity of his wife as a woman. They were put together with purpose in the garden. They were given a marriage with God. The two became one. They had purpose. Before there was ever sin, they had purpose in what the Lord gave them to do. They had free will. The devil was real. They fell to temptation. The day they ate from the tree, they would die. Thus, in Adam, we are the descendants of Adam. We're all in his loins. In Adam, all sin and die. We grow up, we sin, we die. But the second Adam, Christ, because God so loved the world, he gave his son. The second Adam, Jesus comes, and every capacity that Adam failed as the head of our race, Christ, as the second head of our race, comes to provide a way of redemption and forgiveness and cleansing, restoration, to restore what was lost in the garden in this fallen world, and it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's Christ working in us as we're being transformed from glory to glory, and what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. And though we have to die a physical death, we are given eternal life and abundant life the moment we give our life to Christ. So what Adam lost in Genesis 3, we have restored to us in John 3. But it always starts with Adam. In the mosaic of the human history that we are all a part of tonight, here on February 14, 2023, we are part of that mosaic. This is our time. These are our boundaries. It all starts with Adam. Because out of darkness, God spoke life. And on the sixth day, he made man in his image with perfect design and order. And it's not just the redemption of man, as prophesied in Genesis 3.15, that God would provide redemption with the fall, because God promised when Adam fell that he would provide a redeemer. Thus, the genealogy shows Seth, because Cain and Abel are omitted because they don't matter. God had to give another son, Seth. The promise of Messiah to come to save the world has to come through Seth. And eventually, you see the line goes through Noah and his three sons. Pre-flood world, a world we don't even understand, one before our time. But still, these are men, these are women. Genesis 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6, and then the flood of 7, 8, and 9 take us to it. And the last four there, Noah and his three sons, they were in the pre-flood world and the post-flood world that gave way to the Ice Age right after the flood. And so this is the beginning of humanity, and this is the beginning of the reign of Christ. Because Adam... Adam is the very first word in this book. And this book is ultimately taking us to the last word of all human history. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Adam, there he is. Adam, the head of our race. There's no confusion over origin, gender, marriage, 
purpose. It's all there in one word, Adam, creating God's image. Verse 5, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog. So this is all the nations being scattered. This is the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. These are the nations. So from one man come the nations. Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Magdi, Javan, Tubai, Meshach, Tiras. The son of Gomer was Ashkenaz, Diphthoth, and Togomar. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshisha, Kittim, Rodam. The sons of Ham, so these are the three sons of Noah, Japheth, Ham, Canaan. And you can do the research, but all the nations come from these three descendants of Noah. Verse 8, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one of the earth. Mizram begot Ludim and Anamim. Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrasim, Kaslehim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphatorium. So this is the origin of the Philistines, and of course they're a big part of the history of Israel and Judah. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, and the Hamalathite. So from these Canaanites came the Canaanites, right? So the Philistines, these are all Canaanite people and uh, that part of the world. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Aphrodox, Lud, Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshach. Arphax begot Shelah, and Shelah begot Ebner, or excuse me, Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. There's a lot, there's speculation over what that means, but uh, we don't really know. But that detail comes forth in his life, both in Genesis and here. And his brother's name was Joktan, and Joktan begot Amadad, Sheleph, Hazramathbeth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Abo, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Habliah, and Jobad. All these were the sons of Joktan. Shem, Aphrax, Shela, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Surig, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, who is Abraham. The sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. So here in verses 5 through 28, we get the what would be the transition of those descendants that came through the flood, came from the three sons of Noah and their wives, and populated the world during that period known as the Ice Age, about a 500-year time period in a post-flood world, and Abraham comes out of Ur the Chaldeans, modern Babylon, about that time. There in Genesis, we're told that God called Abraham to come out of his family, out of his country, to go to land that God would give him. The uniqueness of Abraham, most of us know, is he's the father of faith. Not only that, he's actually, there are three great world religions that are monotheistic that believe in one God. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And of course, the people who reject God would blame the world's problems on those three world religions, and the world religions would blame each other on the problems of the world, or the atheists, and the Marxists, and so on and so forth. But it is noteworthy that Islam claims their religion through Abraham, through Ishmael, who, who they claim is the son of promise. Judaism claims their faith as the ultimate, because Isaac is the son of promise, and they see those promises made to Israel, to the nation, not to the descendant of the king of kings who had come from the nation. And then Christianity recognizes that all those promises made to Abraham are, in fact, exactly what they are from God. Abraham promises that the great Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would come through him. Jesus said there's, there's no other way to come to the Father but through him. So those other monotheistic world religions, not to mention, of course, all the other false religious systems and human philosophies, all bow the knee and pay homage to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And Jesus Christ came to the world through the promise made to Isaac, the son of promise. And it's because Jesus Christ would come through Abraham and the promised son Isaac that Abraham's called the father of faith. Now, Abraham, as we look at some of these names, we're just going to get a little bit of application on some of these guys. So we got a little bit with Adam, but Abraham is, is just such a key person in the Bible. He's in the Old Testament He's the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father, really, of Christianity. And he's in the New Testament for all various reasons that are theological in their shadow and fulfilled 
fully in faith in Jesus Christ. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, when we ask Christ into our life, as it says in John, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. WG, body of Christ. When we accepted Christ, whether we said a prayer or went forward in an altar call, went back to pray with somebody, but there's that moment where we pass from death to life because we have to become a new creation. For in Adam all sin and die, but in Christ all are made alive. So we have to pass from death to life. It doesn't happen ambiguously. It happens deliberately and intentionally. So obviously if you're here tonight, you've never simply asked Christ into your life. I know most of you, not all of you. That's as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Jesus called men to himself, women to himself. He was inclusive for all, but exclusive that you could only be saved through him. And this really, the foundation of being saved by faith, what we call positional righteousness, goes back to Abraham. And the life of a sanctified life of walking with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill his purposes and to be his workmanship also goes back to Abraham. Practical righteousness. See, positional righteousness is faith. That person goes forward to a great glory crusade, or you said that prayer, and it truly happens where you're born again, the light's on, and you've passed from death to life. That's faith, and that's a positional righteousness. You are perfect before the Lord because the Father sees you as he sees the Son without sin. His righteousness, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that happens positionally. That's a very important New Testament doctrine found in the father of faith, Abraham. To be declared righteous because God spoke something and we believe it. We didn't do one thing to earn it. We heard the gospel and we received it. That's exactly what happened with Abraham, and I'll get there in a second. But then if we really receive it, we'll begin to walk in it because of a newness of life. Like, we're told to desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn babe, and we've had lots of grandbabies in my timeline with my, grand, my kids having seven grandkids. I just saw the newest one, Dune, born in November. And Dune lets you know he wants milk. He, you know, babies let you know. It's a natural desire, to physical desire for the infant to want milk. That's the nature of a human being and well, animal kingdom pretty much most of it as well. But the human child wants the milk. Well, we're told that when we're born again, we're going to want this, the word of God the pure milk of the word. So when people say, is someone truly saved or not saved? And I'll say, well, if, if, if they're going forward with the Lord, they're probably saved, but life's too short for me to try and figure it out anyways. I got my hands full with, as the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I got my hands full just the, with the man in the mirror. But we do know this. Someone who walks around arrogantly, pridefully, and carnally with no interest in the word of God probably is not saved. Because we're to desire the pure milk of the word, and that's going to be the, the indication Suddenly the word's alive and you want it. And so we'll walk in the things of God and we'll begin to go forward in things of God. It's, we're not just saved to be saved by grace. We're saved by grace to f- get back on track with the original plan that God had with Adam to get back to the kingdom and back to the purpose and transformation from glory to glory. We're moving toward glory. Amen. So when we look here at Abraham, as he was called out of Ur the Chaldeans and then came to the promised land of Israel, God told him, from the stars of heaven, you see, your descendants would be like the stars of heaven. He didn't have one descendant. Sarah, Sarai at the time was barren. He hadn't even been involved with Hagar yet. And he said, the, the, my, my servant Eliezer, he's going to be the heir to my inheritance and my wealth. And God's like, no. See the stars? That's how your descendants will be. And God said, it'll come from you. And it was an impossible statement for Abraham. But we're told that Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, He believed what God spoke, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God declared him righteous for the mere fact that he believed what God promised him. Now, this important verse is quoted for us in the book of Romans in that great theological declaration of the first eight chapters of Romans where Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is laying out that we're saved by grace through faith. We believe that Christ died for us, and that's when we believe that, it's imputed to us or reckoned to our account as righteousness, like I was sharing earlier. So Abraham had positional righteousness because he believed the promise of God. We have positional righteousness because we believe the promise of God even more fully because his was a shadow of things to come, but ours is the fullness in Christ. Now, 
that is affirmed for us in Romans and again in Galatians. It's, such, it's a theological statement of truth in the life of Abraham around 2000 B.C. That we're saved by faith in the promise of God and God sees us righteous because we believe we're believing, not what we're doing. We believe before we're doing. That's the key. And by the way, we also know that uh, Noah, Enoch, and they were saved by faith. They walked by faith, and that's why they're in Hebrews 11. From the dawn of creation, all the women and men redeemed by the Lord in the Old Testament before Christ came are redeemed because of their faith. Faith is the critical element, believing God. But But Abraham is a fuller understanding of it. Then we have the beautiful text in James chapter 2 where it says that the same quotation from Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God was accounting for righteousness. And then we know that Abraham, he didn't withhold his son Isaac, the son of promise. And that was, that, that was a test of his faith, we're told. And he offered up Isaac, believing that God would raise him from the dead. His faith was so certain in the promises of God that his descendants would be like the stars through this son that he did not withhold his son. And he considered him as good as dead when he went up to Mount Moriah to offer him up. And he knew that God would raise him up. And he said, the boy and I go yonder, but we will come back together. So even when he's offering up his son to be sacrificed, he knew that God would raise his son from the dead even if he was executed right there. And then God stopped him and provided the ram. But he came back down the mountain with Isaac. He passed the test. And all those promises are fulfilled. But James tells us that he believed God was counting for righteousness, but his righteousness showed itself in action, the the works of faith, not the works of the law, but the works of faith showed themselves when he offered up Isaac. And thus we see the declaration that he believed God was accounting for righteousness was imputed to him as a righteous standing, but it showed itself in action when he offered up Isaac and put his, when his faith was put to the test, his faith proved itself in offering Isaac. So as beautiful as Romans 4 is and Galatians 3, we're using this passage from Genesis 15, 6, it's probably most beautiful in James chapter 2 because that's what goes on to say, faith without works is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so too is faith without works. So we often identify Abraham as being positionally righteous, and rightfully so, as we are with Christ. But you know, it's like Ephesians 2 says, that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, by faith through grace, but we are saved to be his workmanship, which means God has a work to do, and he's working out, you know, he's doing that work in us by that transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And that's who Abraham is. He's the father of our faith. See, those other world religions that would claim Abraham as their father, they don't touch that. They don't have Jesus. They don't have the gospel of grace. They don't have good news. They don't have assurance. We have assurance. They don't have, they're, not, they're not a work of art. See, if you go after Judaism, it's, so fra- it's fragmented in many ways. And it's, modern Judaism is it's hard to understand. But there's no assurance and there's no workmanship by the Holy Spirit. To be a workmanship and a work, poema, work of art by God, it's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And they don't have the Spirit. So how can you be a work of art? You're working for something like what? Just a, a clay pot that's going to be from the dust we came, the dust will return. But when we're redeemed, we become his work of art on display like in a museum for all eternity. The work of art of what Christ did in me and you, the hope of glory. And that would, of course, be the same for Islam. They don't have the Spirit. They're not saved by grace through faith. They're not a work of art. They're not, they're not under the second Adam being restored to what was lost in the garden and fulfilling that upper call of God in Christ Jesus. They're not doing that, let alone the world religions with many gods or human philosophies with no God. It's only the church of Jesus Christ with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great commission to get the gospel out that brings to humanity the restoration of what was lost in Adam and restored in the second Adam and spoken of through Abraham, who came 2,000 years after Adam, and 2,000 years before the second Adam. It's the glorious gospel. It's why we sing you songs with Bobby, and we're happy. It's why we have joy, even in sorrow, because we have abundant life. Adam to Abraham. See, God gave covenants that are progressive with more revelation. And by the way, isn't that what eternity is going to be? Full revelation. What's the last book of the Bible? The revelation of Jesus Christ. We're, 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 and you know, when you walk with the Lord, what do you get? More revelation of Jesus Christ. As deep as you want to go, you can go deep sea diving with King Jesus. 
You want to swim in the kiddie pool? You can do that the rest of your life. But if you want to go deep sea diving with Jesus, he'll give you the gear that goes deep. It's, it's each one. As much as we put in to get after the kingdom is as much as we're going to get out of the kingdom. And then we step into glory and it is what it is. But Abraham is the father of our faith and the son of promise. Isaac is through whom, through whom Jesus Christ came. Now, we read on. So now we're going to get the descendants of Abraham and it's going to take us to their neighbors as well because all these people groups came through Abraham and, and in the ancient world, post-flood, post-ice age. And so I'm going to read these names and stay with me. Verse 29. Now, these are the genealogies of the firstborn of Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was through Hagar, the maidservant. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. He was the firstborn of Abraham, but not the son of promise. God said he would bless him, and he did, but he's not the son of promise. The Messiah does not come through him. Ishmael was born of Ishmael was Nabajoth, then Kader, Adbiel, Midsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael. Now the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine, so that's Abraham's second wife, says this. Um, after Sarah died, he had a second wife. Sarah died. Was, these were his descendants with his second wife. Zimran, Jokshan, Midian, Midian, so the Midianites, Ishbak and Shua, the sons of Jokshan were Sheba and Dedan, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abedah, Eldah, all these are the children of Keturah. And Abraham begot Isaac, and the sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel, which of course is Jacob. So here in verse 34 we get the patriarchs, you know, the, the you know, the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's it. That's father of faith, the son of promise, and Israel is Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel from heel grabber to prince of God, and he gave him 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes, which we'll get to in a moment. The sons of Esau, so Esau, of course, was the other son, the twin of Jacob, Israel, and they wrestled in the womb, but he was not of the spirit, he was of the flesh. So Esau, his sons were Eliphaz, Ruel, Jeus, Jalam, and Korah. And the sons of Eliphaz were Temnon, Omar, Zephi, Gatam, and Kenaz, and by Timnah, Amalek. So the Amalekites come that way. The sons of Ruel were Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. Now, we get these other descendants. These are their neighbors. And you say, like, you know, I've read, I've read these names over and over. Like, why are these names even here? Well, they're your neighbors. And it's funny enough, Jennifer was telling me about some of the news in the neighborhood because she went for a walk with Ethelin, and nothing's like, oh, that family, this and that happened in that house, and that happened over there. It's like, these things happen in your neighborhood. Like, you know, like some people like have like the app where you know what's going on in your neighborhood, and you get told like, oh, that's why the ambulance came there. Or, oh, they're going to be doing street work on that road on, you know, England Street next week at 3 in the afternoon. Like, I don't know what that app is. I don't have it. But, you know, maybe you do. All right? It's your neighborhood. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood right here. This is that world at that time. These are the neighbors. These are the people that were around them. They shared planet Earth with them around this time. Like we share borders with Mexico and Canada and these things and the Caribbean. And like we share the planet. You know? We spy on them. They spy on us. We share the planet. This is the human race, right? Verse 38. The sons of Seir were Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. And the sons of Lotan were Hori, Homam, Lotan's sister was Timnah. The sons of Shobal were Alian, Manahath, Ebal, Shephi, and Anam. The sons of Zibion were Aja and Anna. The sons of Anna were Dishon. The sons of Dishon were Hamram, Ishban, Itharon, Cheran. The sons of Ezer were Bilhah, Zavan, and Jakan. And the sons of Dishon were Uz and Aran. And now we get the kings who reigned over the land of Edom before a king reigned over the children of Israel. So these are descendants of Esau. They had kings, and the Edomites came from them, of course, and they had kings early on before Israel ever did. Bela, the son of Beor, and the name of his city was Dinahab. And when Bela died, Jobad, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Hushma, the land of the Tenemites, reigned in his place of the land of the Tenemites. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bidad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city was Aviath. When Hadad died, Samla of Masrakah reigned in his place. When Samla died, Saul 
of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, Baal means Lord, Lord Hanan, the son of Akbor reigned in his place. And when Baal Han died, Hadan reigned in his place. The name of his city was Pi. His wife's name was Mahatabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab. Hadad died also, and the chiefs of Edom were Chief Timnah, Chief Aliah, Chief Jetheth, Chief Ahalabama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Temen, Chief Mizar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom. So these are the descendants of Esau. So there's this massive human race that comes from Adam and pre-flood world, ice age, post-flood world, God through Seth, Noah, the descendants of Noah, right on here to Abram, Abraham. God changed his name to Abraham. So the whole world's going this way, but it's all going this way for the messianic line for Jesus to come. And that's what we're really seeing here. These names, they are interesting to me. It's like, oh, you know, so-and-so, he married such-and-such, and they did this. But when you see names about kings and they come and go, it's kind of like just finishing Second Kings. It's like when you go to the courthouse in Santa Ana and they show the chief justice for the last 80 years on the wall, right? You got headshots that look like the 50s, 40s, 30s, and 20s coming back to the 70s, 80s, you know, like, and they all came and went. It's like the mayor's office, like in Huntington, you have a picture of all the mayors, right? They come and they go. This person dies, replaced by them. They were the boss of Disney then. This is the new boss of Disney. They were the boss of Microsoft and the new boss of Microsoft. They ran the World Pro Surfing Tour. Now they run the World Pro Surfing Tour. They just come and go, right? But the name of Jesus is the name of every name. So we just say, that's, they're your neighbors. They go off and go to work, and they work for chief so-and-so for such and such time till the chief gets fired or dies and someone else replaces them. It's a human experience. Chapter 2. These were the sons of Israel, so Jacob, these, and these are the 12 tribes, right? Here we go. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So the 12 tribes of Israel, they come from the, the two wives of Jacob, Rachel and Leah, and the two handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpha, and they're in that modern Jordan, that land there where Laban lived, Jacob went during that time, and God gave him this large family, and they became a huge family, and they came back to the promised land. So when we read about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes in the north ruled by the kings of the north, like Ahab, or the southern tribe of Judah plus Benjamin thrown in with them, that's what we get. Now, from Joseph came two subdivisions. So Levi, the Levites became the Levite priesthood, but Joseph is subdivided by his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So really there's 13 tribes because Joseph gets a subdivision with the two grandsons, and Levi doesn't get any inheritance because they're the priesthood, which we get quite a bit of in this book, by the way. Now we read on with Judah, because again, the captives are coming back from Babylon, so what really matters to them, this is big human experience from Adam through the neighbors, the Edomites, the Moabites, all these people, but really it's about them, man. You're coming back from captivity, the land your parents had, you know, 90 years ago, your great-grandfather tilled that land there in Judah, and now you're coming back. Other people have been occupying it. You need to know who you are. This is Ancestry.com. That You come from Judah. This is your right to the land. This is the faith that was passed on to you. My daughter Hannah did a book report way back around fifth or sixth grade, and she traced a great-great-grandmother with a Presbyterian background back to Civil War time that she's a descendant of teaching Bible studies in a house in Wisconsin. And you need to know who your ancestors are in the faith, right? Like, like, this stuff's important. So I, those things exist because people want to know. But for them, not only are their biological ancestors, but it's also their right to come back to the land and claim the land that was in the family. It's hard to reclaim land that's lost, isn't it? Human history shows people don't give it back. They take it and they don't give it back. It's kind of like Florida. The irony of Florida is the original Indians... They lost everything. Then the Seminoles came in and took it from them. Then the Seminoles got hauled off and taken away. But people often think the land that was taken from Indians in Florida was, was uh, white people, particularly Andrew Jackson, taking it from the Seminoles. They're not the original people. The Seminoles displaced the other Indians before they got there. Human history is people taking land from each other. That's why if you study European borders from the last 300 years, it's like, <laughs> just, it's like, it's like slice and dice, like Benny Hanna's, man. It's changing all the time because that's human history. So Israel coming back now to reclaim what's theirs, you better have God being your advocate. 
It's like the widow coming back from seven years of famine, as we saw in Kings, right? You, you want an advocate. Well, in this case, God's our advocate. So we want the context. It matters because this is your deed. Hey, my parents own this land. This is like, this is your right to these things. And there's still a people of covenant. And 70 years, and now they got to start all over again. But there are the 12 tribes. Now, the sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, verse 3. These three were born to him by the daughter of Shua the Canaanitess. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he killed him. God struck him down. That's in uh, Genesis, what, chapter 38, I believe. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. All the sons of Judah were five. So this is how Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and this is how the tribe of Judah came into existence, was through this man, the father of their tribe, Judah. The sons of Perez were Hazron and Hamul. The sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, Heman, Kalkul, and Dara. Five of them in all. The sons of Army, excuse me, the sons of Carmi was Achor, that's Achan from the book of Joshua, the troubler of Israel who transgressed in the accursed thing. The son of Ethan was Azariah. Also the sons of Hezron were born to him were Jaramil, Ram, and Chelebai. Ram begot Aminadad. Aminadad begot Nashon, leader of the children of Judah. Nashon begot Salma, and Salma begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot Eliab, the firstborn. Abinadab, the second. Shimei, the third. Nathaniel, the fourth. Radii, the fifth. Osram, the sixth. And David, the seventh. So these are King David's brothers. He's the seventh of the brothers. Now the sisters were Zariah and Abigail. So David had two sisters. And the sons of Zariah were Abishai, Joab, and Asiel, three. Those are, you know, those are the star players in Samuel, right? These are the guys, the cousins. Abigail bore Amasa. The father of Amasa was Jether, the Ishmaelite. So now we're getting introduced to the house of David. And one person we've got to stop and say, don't we just love him? Boaz. When you see this list, well, it's no, worth noting that David's oldest brother, Eliab actually gets hired by David in his kingdom. We'll see that in the back part of Chronicles. He's a key person. He's a very key person. So <laughs> David was gracious to his big brother. Everyone thought should be the king. You know, like, so the youngest brother was gracious with big brother, gave him a great spot in the kingdom. And we'll see that at the end of the book. But Boaz, like, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of Ruth. We actually aired it on K-Wave as well because it's such a fascinating story and it's almost lost in the the whole Bible mosaic. And, you know, the more you look at Boaz with Ruth, the Moabite, as becoming his wife a generation apart, it's really fascinating when you really think about his life because he should almost be in Hebrews 11 or something. There should be like, by faith, oh, oh you know, Boaz did this and that and everything else. Because, but he doesn't have to have Hebrews 11 because he has a whole book. But in case you forgot, and as we're into the new year, now we got traction, we're in the middle of February, pretty much halfway through the first quarter, When we looked at Boaz in the book of Ruth, we saw something. Every time his name is named or he's spoken of, he's pronouncing the blessings of the Lord or walking in the blessings of the Lord. He's introduced us and he's like, hey, the Lord be good. And then the people will say, and the Lord bless you. His employees were happy to work for him. His disposition was one of faith. He was positive. He was upbeat. He was optimistic. And he carried it into the room. He tilted the room. Boaz walked the room. He tilted the room. Like, he tilted the room. You know, we say that in sports, and Scott Enyart, my good friend, who's been a football coach for 20 years, he's talking about, like, we talk about quarterbacks on road trips when we were doing worship generation. They say, oh, that, that guy's vanilla. There's nothing special about that guy. He goes, but that guy, he tilts the room. Coaches want a quarterback that walks in the room, and he tilts the room. Bosses want a woman that will work for the company, that she tilts the room. She carries herself, how she presents herself. She's a woman of faith. She's confident in the Lord. She looks in the mirror. She knows God's in control. Got this. She's going to show up to work. She's going to get it done. And she's not going to let evil men or evil women stop her. She's serving the Lord. She's Proverbs 31. And she's taking care of business. She tilts the room. That's the man of faith. They, they tilt the room. They know who they are in Christ. They're confident in that. They're sure of the promises. They're yes and amen. They're not messing around. They're not wasting time. They're not distracted. They don't let people push their buttons with negative things or unbiblical things. They fulfill 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. They, it's lead follower, get out of the way. 
They're not pushy. They're not rude. But they got things to do for the kingdom. And they're going to pronounce blessings on you. If you want to accept the blessings, good for you. If you don't, oh, well, that's your choice. Because they represent the blessings. They are the blessings. They don't have time for the people that are the curses. They'll try and help them like Jesus did, but they're moving on to fruitful things. That's how we want to be. Boaz was a man with the blessings and brought the blessings. When everyone, you know, remember, um, Ruth's father-in-law died. and Well, they all went, there was a famine. They all left Israel and went to Moab. Remember the story? Well, when everyone's else bailing out, like, oh, it's, it's a recession, it's sell, 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 everyone's losing their jobs, blah, 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 the Russians are coming, the Chinese are coming, whatever's coming, it's coming, oh, look, a balloon in the sky, a rocket, UFOs. And he's just like, hey, it's a great day. It's a great day with the Lord. God bless you all. And they're like, and the Lord bless you too. That's what they were like. That's what he was like. He prospered in the worst economic time imaginable. In the worst economic time of his time, Boaz prospered. He didn't make excuses. He didn't read the newspaper and the so-called experts. He had his eyes on the Lord, the promises of God from the book of Moses, the books of Moses, and he brought the A-game. He didn't blink. He, didn't, he just he had no time for it. He took every thought captive. He shows up to work. Happy are the people who work for him. It's like when uh, the Queen of Sheba said that to Solomon, happy, it's not half of what I heard, and now happy are the people that work for you and are under you. More so for him. When people were bailing, when people were selling, he was buying. And he was buying the good stuff when people were bailing out. He would never walk in fear. He walked in faith. And if you go through the book of Ruth, which I did again today, and look at everything associated with it, like blessing, 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 blessing. He's like John Corson come down your street pronouncing blessings. He's blessing, blessing, blessing. Whoa, whoa. He's a blessing. We need to be people who are blessed, and we bless. We're the church. The cross, the empty tomb, right hand of the Father, great high priest, tongues of fire, is not about being a, a negative naysayer. It's about walking in the blessings, believing the blessings, and being the blessing. Ruth was like, who am I? I'm nobody. He's like, no, you, I know who you are. You did good things for your father-in-law. You did good things for your mother-in-law. You, you, you're a good woman, man. I know who you are. He talked her up when she talked herself down. When Ruth talked herself down, he talked her up. He spoke life into her. And when she laid at his feet all night, in one of the most romantic nights in the Bible, he said, I'll take care of business. And then Ruth went home to Naomi, and Naomi said, oh, that man, that man gets stuff done. Hey, girl, they don't go too far, because he's not going to settle till this business. Listen, chapter 3 ends with, she says, hey, he's not going to settle till this business is done. He tilted the room, he got things done. People that know the blessings, walk in the blessings, and pronounce the blessings, they get stuff done. The virtuous woman gets stuff done. In fact, Proverbs 31, what is it? It's a woman getting stuff done. And she's got beauty, and she's got beauty to spare, and she's getting stuff done. Like, there's a thousand women in a beauty pageant. That woman's the one's like, she gets stuff done. Boaz is just a name here. But his life is an inspiring legacy. And there's a, whole, there's a whole book. And though the book is called Ruth and revolves around Ruth, Boaz is the key component of the book. Because if Boaz is not the kinsman redeemer, Ruth is not redeemed. So Boaz is like the type of Christ that comes in and provides the redemption. He's the kinsman's redeemer. The other guy's like, hey, man, I got my own inheritance. I'm a, I, I got my own gig. I'm not part with my gig. And Boaz's like, hey, I'll give up my gig to let this thing work. He gave up his identity and his inheritance and his wealth that he built in a recession to give blessings to this woman and to restore Naomi's family line. Boaz tilted the room, and Boaz, apart from being a blesser, was a giver. He gave up his own identity, his own wealth, his own inheritance for this Moabite woman. And like Naomi say, oh, well, he's going to get something done. You don't go anywhere, girl. He's coming back, man. That guy gets stuff done. And he did. That guy, he's just a name right here. Verse 11, he just pops up between Salma and, and Obed. <laughs> But he is in the New Testament for the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now we wrap it up with the rest of Judah here in chapter 2. 
this is not our Caleb that we know. So we get another Caleb. It's a common name. This is not Caleb that we know from the book of Joshua. Okay. Caleb, the son of Hezron, had children by Azubah, his wife, and by Jerioth. Now these were her sons, Jeshur, Shobat, and Ardun. When Azubah died, Caleb took Afroth as his wife, who bore him her, and her begot Uri, and Uri begot Bezalel. Now afterward, Hezron went into the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Sigud. Sigud begot Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Geshur and Syria took from them the towns of Jair, with Kenneth and his towns, 60 towns. So that's all to the north, Israel. All these belonged to the sons of Machir, the father of Gilead. After Hezron died and Caleb Ephrathah, Hezron's wife Abijah, bore him Asher, the father of Tekoa. The sons of Jeremiel, the firstborn of Hezron, were Ram, the firstborn, Buna, Oren, Ozim, Ahijah, Jeremiel, another wife whose name was Atara, who was the mother of, she was the mother of Onam. The sons of Ram, the firstborn of Jeremiel, were Maz, Jamin, and Eker. The sons of Onam were Shamiah and Jada. The sons of Shamiah were Nadab and Abishur. The names of the wife of Abishur was Abihel, who she bore him, Habad, and Molid. The sons of Nadab were Selad, Afim. Selad died without children. The sons of Afim were Ishai. The sons of Ishai were Shishan. And Shishan's son was Ahal. The sons of Jada, the brother of Shammai, were Jether and Jotham. Jether died without children. The sons of Jotham were Peliath and Zerah. These were the sons of Jeremiel. And Shishan had no sons, only daughters. And Shishan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. Shishan gave his daughter to Jarha, his servant, as wife. And she bore him Atai. Atai begot Nathan. Nathan begot Zebad. Zebad begot Ahel. And Ahel begot Obed. Obed begot Jehu. Jehu begot Azariah. Azariah begot Helez. Helez begot Elisah. Elisah begot Sismai. And Sismai begot Shalom. Shalom begot Jechmiah. Jechmiah begot Elishamah. The descendants of Caleb's brother of Jemiel were Mesha, the firstborn, who was the father of Ziph, and the sons of Marasoth, the father of Hebron. The sons of Hebron were Korah, Tafua, Rechem, and Shema. Shema begot Raham, the father of Jorkam. Rechem begot Shemai, and the sons of Shemai were Moan, and Moan was father of Bethzer. Ephah, Caleb's concubine, bore Haran, Moza, and Gaziel. Haran begot Gaz, excuse me, Gaziz, and Haran begot Gazes, and the sons of Jahadai were Regem, Jotham, Geshan, Pelet, Epha, Shev. Maka, Caleb's concubine, bore Sheber and Tirhana. She bore Shaef, the father of Madamiah, Shevez, the father of Machbenah, the father of Gibeah, and the daughter of Caleb was Aksa. Now, this is interesting because this is actually Caleb, the Caleb we know's daughter. There's a complex explanation of this online if you want to read it on your own. Okay, so that is there, but it's, it's all like the different Caleb thing, but this is the right Caleb's daughter. Uh, you know, I got my hands full just pronouncing the names. Verse 50. These were the descendants of Caleb, the sons of Hur, the firstborn, Ephrathah, were Shobal, the father of Kirjath, Jerem, Salma, these are names we know and recognize. Salma, the father of Bethlehem. Haref, the father of Beth Gator. So this is how we get these town names because these are actual people the towns came after. And Shobal, the father of Kirjath, Jerem, had descendants. Horeh, and half of the families of Manahath. The families of Kirjath, Jerem, were Ithraelites, the Puhites, the Shumathites, the Mishraelites. From these came the Zorathites and the Eshtolthites. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem, the Neph. Lithites, Athroth, Beth, Joab, half the Manathites and the Zorites, and the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were Tithrathites, the Shemathites, and the Sukkathites. These were the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. It does mention here the scribes, and it is worth noting in a closing thought that there was always scribes who translated the scriptures and kept them for us. The tradition of scribal translations there when I studied uh, scripture history 
it's very interesting how the scribes were involved in stuff. And the Jews had a long, great history of the scribal records and everything. They were very meticulous in recording things. And so we see even that reference to scribes here. If we're, again, from the tribe of Judah, coming back from captivity, and we're trying to identify who we're with, the Jews were very meticulous in their identity and their ancestry. So, again, all these names mean something to the people coming back because we're going to trace it through like, oh, you're like, so in my own family, oh, you're from, from your dad's side, that's Barans, they're Norwegian, and, um, and they came this way. But, the, you know, the Truesdales are this side, so Esther Truesdale and then uh, Robert Truesdale, and he's the one that served in the Civil War with the Northern Regiment, you know, that we have the, his historical letter he wrote after he was wounded in combat in, like, 1863. Uh, I mean, like, we have that stuff. So when I went to Richland Center, Wisconsin, like, this is the farm that Esther, my grandmother, grew up on and swore she'd never be a farmer's uh, wife. And so in 1919, she moved to Madison to not be a farmer's wife in Richland Center, Wisconsin. But I can go back to that farm, and I did 20 years ago with my dad and my sister. My sister brought it up when we were in Florida. Remember when we all went back to Madison and went to Richland Center and saw the farm? I'm like, yeah, that's a farm. Esther told me she hated because no one wants to get up at 4.30 in the morning in Wisconsin and milk cows when it's five below, and she did when she's a teenager. Every name's a story, right? There's, there's, you go four or five generations in front of us. There's a story before you. All of you have a story. But the beauty is when we come to Christ, now we've really got the story. There's, there's heritage there. And it might, it might be a good story that you're proud of. Like, oh, you know, Aline Baran came through Ellis Island in 19, 1904 with seven kids not speaking a word of English. She was the poor people in the bottom of Titanic in the poor people area, right? Took the train to Madison, not having a word of English to all those kids. Hadn't seen her husband in three years. That's the Baran family name from the village in Norway. It's kind of a cool story, right? Like my dad, you know, has Ellis Island. He paid the money for all this stuff to have the memorabilia and all that. You have a story. It might be a really good story. We're all immigrant stories, of course. So it might be a beautiful story. It might not be so beautiful. But what's the matter? Because Christ gives you the story. It goes back to, in Adam we all sin, but the second Adam we're restored, and we're a workmanship. So if you have a good story, good for you. If it's not so good, get on with your story. And give your descendants a better story. If you don't have any descendants, leave planet Earth better than you found it in Jesus' name. Yes? And amen.